Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on the fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. In this episode, I am a loud, passionate fan of mild, and since it's the end of May, aka Camera's Mild Month, and writers keep saying that mild is making a comeback. Well, to help fuel that comeback, I'm talking with Dave Satella, brewmaster at Royal Docks Brewing, and more importantly, the author of Mild from Brewers Publications, way back in 1999. Are we tilting at windmills? Probably. But at least they're very delicious, welcoming windmills. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Now through May 31st, get a quarter pound of H.A. Zamba hops when you join or renew your American Homebrewers Association membership with promo code ZAMBA. That's Z-A-M-B-A. Zamba. Get your offer details at homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. I'm sort of a mild obsessive, and I've been proselytizing for mild for uh, what feels like forever, and of course, getting nowhere. Yeah. So I, when you said mild obsessive, I, I wrote a book on mild, and I and I took that to mean you're mildly obsessive. And I we're on a podcast about mild, and it's still not top of mind, and that's probably part of the problem. Let's break into that real quick, boys and girls. Welcome to the podcast. As I set up in the intro, and as you may have just figured out in listening to us talk, we're going to talk a little bit about one of my favorite subjects and the subject of something I wish we could get more people to brew and drink, which is mild. And Dave, why don't you tell people who you are since you already spilled the beans on the book? <laughs> sure. I'm Dave Satula. I uh, am a professional brewer here in Northeast Ohio. I have been brewing professionally since 1991 or two, depending on how you count it. So I'm kind of old school, uh, you know, to the point where the first time I went to Britain, mild ale was still sort of popular. I mean, you could drive around the uh, flat country and actually find multiple examples at single pubs. I guess that goes back to, I wrote the book on mild ale in the classic beer style series, number 15, back in... I think 1998 I wrote it. I think it came out in 99. Yeah, we won't do the math on how long ago that was. Yeah, it's been a, it's it's crazy. I have uh I have brewers on my staff that were not born. 
you know? <laughs> it's insane. Tell me, like, okay, you said that you got started in professional brewing in 91, 92, depending upon how yep. you look at it and how much beer was drunk. Uh, yes. Remember, beer history is always fuzzy, people, uh, and usually made up of better stories than facts. How did you get started in brewing? So uh, I, I uh, took a trip with a buddy of mine. Um, I was going to school at the University of Toledo in Ohio. And my buddy was going to school in Kent and he said, Hey, why don't you come down? I'm having a party. And, you know, geez, that's two hours away. I'll be there in an hour and a half. So hour and a half later, I roll into Kent and the party is over. And, uh, um, all he had left was some, uh, uh, Milwaukee's best, like, like four cans. And we sat down and we're watching TV and there was this thing on Nova Scotia. Like it was, I want to say discovery channel or whatever preceded the discovery channel. And we're like, oh, that looks so cool. We need to get over there. We need to do that. They're like, hey, let's go right now. So we get in my truck, and we decide we're going to take all back roads to Nova Scotia. And four days later, we roll into Portland, Maine. And it was a <laughs> Sunday morning. There's one place open in downtown, and it was Gritty McDuff's uh, little brewery. And uh, I didn't know anything about craft beer. I didn't know that it was a thing. I walked in. I was not yet 21. So, uh, you know, I just ordered whatever the guy over there was having that looked like to me, honestly, it looked like root beer and it turned out to be a stout. Can't remember the the brand name of it, but it, the skies opened up and I remembered that where I worked at, at Barnes and Noble in Toledo, there was a book on the shelf about homebrewing. And, uh, I always wondered like, you know, you read the side of a can of Bud and it said select cereal grains. How do you make a solid into a liquid? I always sort of wondered about that. But um, I had like this singular mission at that point to get that book. And I actually got the book at a different Barnes & Noble in Syracuse, New York on the way back. And, uh, and started sort of reading while my buddy was driving. Um, and I did my first couple of homebrew batches. Bought my stuff in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And they were like, hey, you know, there's a little brewery opening up right down the down the road here. And I went over there. Um, it, it ended up becoming Grizzly Peak Brewing in Ann Arbor. But it was before that there was a guy just in this little closet making beer. And I started driving up there to, uh, to volunteer with this guy, essentially. It didn't last long, but um, he did tell me there was another brewery in Cleveland, Great Lakes. And I walked into there and Tim Rastetter, who is... Uh, uh, sadly just retired. I mean, sadly for me, great for him. He just retired from Thirsty Dog here in Akron. Was the first guy who ever let me get up on a brew house platform and, and, uh, and, and see what that was all about. And I've been here ever since. I just love the fact that this story starts with one of the things I think I miss the most about being young, which is just the, hey, let's go do that and drive. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, now putting together a lunch is a uh, is <laughs> is a big deal. Try to get out just just do lunch with my wife. Wait, they have an app for that, don't they? Uh. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But that app, I don't think my wife wants me to to get on. You started in in ninety one, ninety two, thereabouts. When did you discover Mild, and how the heck did you end up writing a book on it? So I've always been, even before my beer days, I was an Anglophile, and I always was just into all things England and pubs and, you know, was, was always a, a part of that mystique. You know, I, I remember, hell, I must've been in grade school where somebody said, you know, the, in Britain, the, the pub is the, 
living room for the community. And I, I don't know what my, you know, sixth or seventh grade mind thought of that, but it was clearly, uh, I don't know, it was enticing. And the first time I went over there, which was after I got into beer, I tried everything that was, you know, on, uh, on draft. Um, it was actually at a place called the King's Head in Battle. Being an Anglophile, I was all into the battle in 1066, the Norman Conquest. So I had to drive there first. It was the first place we stopped. And they actually, um, we had gotten in so late to Gatwick that uh, I had called ahead. They're like, listen, it's no problem. You're, you've got your rooms. And when you get here, if you're looking at our door, there's a window next to the door. There will be a key there. You can just let yourself in. Well, somebody, I mean, you know, I'm a 22-year-old kid who's in brewing and somebody gave me a key to an English pub after being in the country for like three hours. Uh, I did nothing but try everything that was at that bar and I shouldn't have been back there, but I did it. And one of them was uh, uh, Harvey's of Sussex. They did a mild ale. And that was probably the first one that I ever put in my mouth. And it was, it was sublime. Um, and from that point, I sort of like went on a little quest for mild ales, learned a little bit about it while I was there, and then ended up going back years later, as you know, to uh, to really get in depth in it and, and write the book about it. it. I'm trying to think of it. I think the first taste of proper British mild I had was I was at the Great British Beer Festival, and I think it was like 2000, 2001, somewhere in that area. This giant hall with all these casts and pumps and gravity feeds and all that. But they're sublime. When you say sublime, tell me what you mean. I, I mean that there, there's something about a mild ale that transcends, to me, transcends history, transcends community. It's like all of those things. It's it's somehow if you if if what it meant to be part of an English village could be distilled into a liquid and then mopped up with a bar mop and rung out into a glass that's a mild ale and i know that is not a great <laughs> a very appetizing thing but to me that it is it is just quintessential englishness in a glass it is uh, uh the, the maltiness and the 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 way it glides across your palate it is like no other beer i have ever had and when i talking about this in my head, I'm thinking of Highgate and Walsall's Dark Mild, Highgate Dark Mild, which to me was the best one that I could possibly find. It's like chocolate milk became beer. I, I know that I'm not giving you the best descriptors here because I am so in love with that. I can't even really think straight. I know what you're going for, and I love it. And I also love people to use their own terms. Because to me, what I love about a good mild, and actually even a good bitter, is that sense of relaxation in the glass, that sense of enjoyment, the fact that like these beers that even when they're, you know, say like 3.2 or 3.8 at the most, still feels rich and full, but also not obnoxiously waving in your face. I agree 100%. You know, actually, um, a friend of mine, Rob Camstra from uh, Gaboot Brewhouse in Columbus, really great little pub. If you're in Columbus, you really need to get in there. It's it's like being in Germany. But um, they're all about lagers, and so am I. I love a great lager. And we were actually talking about this. This is going back several months. And he's like, I don't understand how you get into those ales so much. I mean, when you, when you hold a Pilsner in your hand, 
just how it, it, uh, it it's like to borrow something from champagne. It's like drinking stars. And it is, there is something about the cleanliness of the, of the hops and, and the way it, it glides across the tongue and the effervescence in the mouth, but it's exactly the same thing. And, and it's unfortunate because most American brewers, most Americans in general, haven't had that experience to go to a pub and to have a properly pulled pint. It's exactly the same thing. The, the, how clean and how pure and how perfect it is, is it transcends words. It, it, it can't be put into words. It's just a moment is, I think, the best way I can like to put it. You're right. It captures a particular moment and just holds you there. I love those moments. And by the way, we should be very clear when we're talking about mild here, mild, like a lot of things with British brewing is a ridiculously overloaded term. Absolutely. It, it means, uh, you know, to most people, it means uh, a 3% brown ale. It's that simple. Um, but it's, it's, it's not, there, there's so many aspects of mild and, you know, uh, you and I uh, chatted a little bit earlier about, you know, the historical derivation thereof and, and somehow mild was something that was meant to drink fresh rather than store over a long time and become maybe a bit lactic, but it's become it's and today, you know, you can find something like Sarah Hughes that still does something like that. And you could call that a mild ale and everything to, uh, uh, Boddington's used to be, you know, bill itself as a pale mild ale. Um, so everything from, uh, light beers to dark beers, and uh, even strong beers to weak beers. It's it's terribly overloaded, uh, and 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 kind of nebulous. It's sort of like uh, an IPA. What is an IPA? You know, IPA is synonymous with beer and mild ale. Unfortunately, has goes all over the place in terms of you know how to define it. Sarah uh, Sarah's Ruby Ruby Mild, like uh, I remember that one from Magnolia or Sarah Hughes Mild. Uh, yeah. from overseas for people who haven't had that night. God, I haven't seen that in years. I mean, that was, or that is like a, what's six something is it's a, uh, yeah, I think, it, I, I think at the time, um, I think it's like 7% at the time it was stonkingly huge for British beer. Oh yeah. Oh, for any British beer. Right. I mean, you know, till very, very recently last year, they passed the, a reform of a tax program that essentially was put into place in 1640s, right? <laughs> During the English Revolution, the first excise taxes. Mm -hmm. They finally reformed it so that they're not based on the strength of, a, of a, a product anymore. But You can tell exactly what was happening with British taxation at the time by looking at what happens with beer. Yep. And like saying like, oh, you know, World War One, all these excise taxes and, and restrictions on use of ingredients and suddenly gravity's plummet because <laughs> everybody's like yeah and you know and, and another great thing about beer and how it, it reflects uh especially in britain the uh political climate is what people either call their beer or think their beer is called like uh, uh mcmullen's ak what does an ak mean well it, you know that that's sort of debatable but a lot of people thought it meant ask Switz knockout because he raised the tax on beer so much ak and it is interesting I mean, you go dig through uh like ron Pattinson's blog uh shut up about barkley perkins or read stuff from martin cornell you know and, and how they're digging into like yeah like back in the day people weren't obsessed with the idea like oh that's an ipa that's a stout that's a porter that's a bitter that's a this it was like that's our x that's our double x that's our triple x and that's our k right <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> like, yeah or yeah that's a quality half an x 
very weird. And of course, again, beer history being what it, what it is, really hard to suss out what's real sometimes versus what's just a good story. But when we're talking about mild, I think you and I both were thinking exactly what you talked about, which was that small brown, not a porter beer that starts to really see the rise in. I want to say like it takes on its modern form, if I remember correctly, around like the 1920s, like post-World War One, And then by the time that you get to the 1950s, what I think is mild is really sort of set in stone. Yeah, 1940s probably are, are what we're talking about, where it sets in stone. This is a, you know, 4% or, or south brown beer. Oftentimes, they'd start to put that... Uh, that product into bottles and that's when they called it a brown ale so you could sort of say that you know mild ale is a bottled brown ale um, and there are some really great examples of that or at least there were uh, man's brown ale is one that comes to mind that was about a three and a half percent brown ale uh, man's is the weird outlier one too because it's sweet and small and uh, that london brown right yeah but you also have some mild ales that are from the South, like the Sussex, like that Harvey's brown ale was also sweet and small, obviously small, but it was also sweeter than let's say the roastiness and, uh, you know, high dried Midlands milds. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, I'm back into Wolverhampton, but you had a whole bunch of them there. In fact, when I was there, what is this? 2002, maybe they had a real small pilot system at Marston's that they uh, mild ale on which was also phenomenal and the, john cheatham who was the head brewer there at the time told me that it was a really old recipe that they sort of unmothballed to uh to teach some of the new guys on the brew house but those were again really roasty high dried malts not very sweet necessarily but yeah that's what we're talking about here we're talking about those smaller beers and you know just like everything else there's some regional differences here and there well, you know, good thing that doesn't happen anymore, right? Hmm. Hey, I just looked it up, by the way. Sarah Hughes in, in 1999 built itself at 6.0. So, yep, you were right. Yeah, well, I mean, even then, that's still huge for a British beer. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, no, you get one of those. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned, okay, so you get the the Highlands ones that have the that drier, roastier edge to them. Sure. and. I think when I look around at the very few commercial examples of mild that I see here in the U.S., and even like the mild that that I make all the time, I I think like my perception of what a mild is is colored more by those. The one that used to come over sometimes, and I had a lot of when I went over to the U.K. was a black cat. Yeah, yeah, and and that's in that same sort of vein. It's darker. It's definitely it's, in that vein. Yeah, so uh, black cat's from Morehouse. Uh, well, and Black Hat is 3-4, so yeah, right. that's sort of in that mid-range of, of a mild. Fantastic beer, by the way, for anybody if you ever get it. When I think about mild in a way, and, and I think about something like Black Cat, or I think about here in L.A., one of the one of the breweries, Eagle Rock, one of their starting flagship beers. Everybody remember when people had flagships? Yeah. Their flagship beer was Solidarity, which was a mild, and really almost kind of a mini porter. And I see some of that as a through line, like with that high roast. Right. So, you know, I tried, I tried to have one of our staples, you know, uh, we do have a flagship. It's about fifth on our, uh, <laughs> on our sales roster. When we first started uh, this particular brewery, Royal Docks Brewing Company in Canton, we, I tried to have as a staple, uh, a mild ale, but, 
I'm embarrassed to say, especially considering my background, I copped out and I called it a brown ale. But I did say it was a mild brown ale. We called it plus 44, which is, of course, the country code for Great Britain. You know, it just, unfortunately, again, it was in that, that Midlands roastier, drier vein. It just... It was really good, and you know, but I was brewing seven barrels at a time, and I just couldn't keep it fresh. So, if it took me two and a half, three months to get rid of that that mild, it just wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna be the same beer at the end as it was in the beginning, and I didn't want to do that. Yeah, Eagle Rock ended up getting additional cold storage, like they dropped Solidarity for a while. Yeah, and then they got additional cold storage, and because all the bartenders and brewers in LA went no. So they got additional cold storage and brew up an occasional batch of solidarity and kind of keep it in deep, deep storage. Yeah, I, that, that'd be great. I mean, my, it wasn't about storage. It was just about it getting long in the tooth. What I really needed to do back then was to make like three barrel batches. It's actually, a, and this is a bit of a tangent, it's a little off topic, but we just actually put up our old brewery, um, the brewery that we started with that we sort of mothballed. Because now we're in a, a thirty barrel, and we, you know, we'll we'll do four batches at a time to fill a fermenter. Um, we just put it back up and made a list of all the beers that we wanted to do again, and, and forty four is real high on that list. Hopefully, we'll get another one out there. Let me ask you, because I know when you read stuff about mild in the UK, right? Everybody says, "Oh, well, you know, mild kind of suffered its decline because it's associated with." flat caps granddad and working class yeah and everybody wanted the new shiny loggers at the time to be able to be like look i'm hip and cool sure why why do you think it's so hard to sell something like a mild here in the u.s because we don't have that association but still you can't sell mild no we don't have that association and and you know the unfortunate answer to that is i have no idea because i'd buy the hell out of that kind of beer you know, go back to the the mid '90s. Remember where it was like trying to sell an IPA. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd, you'd have to you'd have to explain to somebody, and they'd be like, "Oh, bitter! I, I don't want anything to do with that." Now you have, you know, seventy five year old ladies coming in saying, "I want the you know the the most bitter beer in the joint." What has um, the most IBUs? Yeah, and they do. I literally will have older you know women who you would expect. <sighs> if they drank a beer to be half of a, a Budweiser, you know, you come into the pub and that's what they want. They want the, the biggest, baddest IPA I can make. So I don't know. I wonder if there's, especially in the craft movement, if in terms of alcohol content anyway, um, and, and maybe even color to some degree, you know, because amber beers and everything were, were kind of catching on mm-hmm. in that mid-90s, uh, you know, Michelob Amber Box springs to mind. But when people made the leap to craft beer, when they finally got over that hump, I wonder if mild ale kind of got left over because it was too transitional between, you know, the beers that they were used to and the beers that they were going to. Does that make sense? Sure. I'm going to step on the gas now. Like right. I'm, I'm all yeah. about the flavor. I'm all about the oomph. So let me go for the, let me go for the bigger batter thing. And oh, that mild three eight, really three six. What? No, I, give me that seven percenter. Right. Yeah, because they were, they were, if they were going, they were going all the way. Yeah, I'm going. Hard. And you're right. We don't have that that association. But it's funny that association doesn't hold water with me either. Mm-hmm. I mean, are they really rebelling against? 
you know, the, uh, I don't know, the cloth cap mentality when, when most people actually end up going back to that. Like, you know, when I was 15, my dad was the stupidest guy I'd ever run into. But by the time I was 25, I couldn't believe how, how much smarter he'd gotten in such a short time. <laughs> and like, I wonder if, you know, I can see for a while, Hey, yeah, I'm going to the city and we moved to London and, and now it's all about loggers, but you know, they, they end up migrating back to a certain degree to, to their roots. Why didn't that, why isn't that part of it? I don't know. I, I also wonder, you know, as real ale was starting to decline and I saw it a little bit there. Not if you go to like, you know, if you went to Parsons Green every time, you always got the perfect pint. But there were people out in the out in the villages that weren't taking care of their lines and, and beers tasted like hell because the cellarmen didn't know what they were doing. Um, and I wonder how much of that has to do with it is as that art was being lost because the market share was being lost. Did the beer actually get worse? Right. Yeah, all the way out to the service. And that's always been one of the big problems with the cask. And I think part of the reason why cask has a hard time happening here in the U.S. As much as uh, aficionados and deportees would uh, like for it to happen. And, and, and there probably isn't much bigger aficionado or devotee, at least in my area, than, than me. And, and I have another guy on our staff who is also as devoted. We have a dedicated cask seller, and we do it the real way you know we we will take a beer out of fermentation at the right time cask them up do the whole nine yards and we still have trouble selling an entire pin of it we we have two breweries here in los angeles that are dedicated around the idea of of cask beer and traditional english beer uh, and of course some of them have had to uh, some there's been some pivot in order to actually stay in business by selling other things but yeah, they you know they they do the whole thing you know it's like got everything up and running and everything's according to camera specs and good stillage and all this, and I'm still surprised sometimes to see how slow beer will move, yeah, which, which is a shame. And and they're doing it well. I mean, you yeah. you would say that yeah, yeah they, they they both have uh, cast mark ratings, so fantastic. Now it, it, the other thing I've been noticing recently, if you're on beer social media, as you may have been seeing articles flying around from, I think it was the telegraph in, in the UK where, you know, they were talking about, Oh, miles making a comeback because, you know, craft brewers have discovered it over there and are picking it back up. And people are tired of hops and mild is coming back. And every time I read one of those articles, I, I can't help but say, you know, from your lips to God's ears, but I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> Well, I, I tell you what, okay, I, you've been around a while. In 1993, would you have said that IPA, would you have ever thought the, the style IPA would grow to what it is today? No, in fact, I don't think I would. I, if you told me that it was going to become almost a monoculture, right? I, mean, I think what most breweries yeah. now, IPA is something like 40 to 50% of what they sell yep. in terms of uh, across the bar or, or the money that they get in. Um, if you told me that there was going to be that sort of dominance in lieu of sort of the breadth that we were seeing in craft beer at the time, I don't think I would have believed you because I would have thought that, well, the thing that attracts people to craft beer is the, the choices, the, the ability to, to dabble and I'll have that and I'll have this and that. And of course that's what drives me. So it was my own, my own blinders. Yeah. Yeah, so if you told me that it was going to become more monoculture that way, no, I don't think I would have believed you. Even if you'd said stout. Yeah, no. You're, you're right. Going all the way to that monoculture of 
everything is an IPA and everything is a derivation of an IPA. I mean, I'm, I'm probably giving away too many of my, I, I'm not going to say secrets, but my weaker moments. Um, like, you know, we did a, uh, what I think was a really nice Saison, a hot forward Saison. And I was the guy, me of all people. I said, you know what? We should call this a farmhouse IPA because it'll sell better. And it mm-hmm. did. It sold pretty well for a Saison, you know? Um, but, but, even if you're not going all the way to a monoculture where everything's an IPA or a stout or whatever it is, I would never have believed that it would be even, you know, uh, even in the top three of your best sellers at any brewery. You know, it was always about the blonde ale, the, uh, you know, a pale ale, maybe, um, and something Porter stoutish. Mm-hmm. So, I guess my point is that I think there's still room for that. Um, you know, I, I really, when the session IPA became a thing and sort of, you know, has obviously waned, I became very, uh, uh, I don't know, optimistic Mm -hmm. thinking, well, here we are. Okay. So if, if our culture is going toward a lighter product, then the mild ale is just waiting in the wings. I mean, it's always been there. So let's just go back to that. And I thought for sure that you would see a resurgence. Uh, you know, I, I don't have any idea that it's going to ever be IPA, but, you know, some kind of resurgence, some kind of respect for the, for the style. But that never really happened. And, and who knows if these uh, articles that are coming out now are overly optimistic. I, I think there's also a, a nostalgia factor going on in the UK for, for pubs and whatnot. I mean, 60 Minutes did that thing a few weeks ago. That was really well done, by the way. It's actually now part of our training for new employees to watch that. We have sort of a British bent, you know, Royal Docks. And so maybe it's it's a, a symptom of their nostalgic streak that is going on over there right now. I still think maybe what I'll do is I'll, one of these days, if I ever decide to be really stupid, I'll open up a brewery and I'm going to call it the IPA Brewery. And it's going to sell everything except for IPA. But everything else is going to be called an interestingly potable ale. <laughs> I, I'm actually going to write that down. I'm going to steal that. Free of that's, that's interesting. I'm going to use that. Let's dig a little bit into into mild itself. Like you had mentioned, you've got the plus forty four that that you do occasionally, yeah. and are gearing up to do again soon, hopefully. When you go to make a mild, what do you think are the keys that people have to think about, like when they're designing a recipe or designing how they're going to do the beer? Well, I mean, uh, I think uh, a dark mild, as we're talking about right here, is all about the malt. I'm old school in that I would always go for Maris Otter. It's still the best, in my opinion. Controlling your temperatures is is insane as that may sound for something that is so deeply British that, uh, you know, they they never seem to be culturally too interested in in controlling the fermentation temperatures. But, you know, you want it to be on the cool end because you don't want to drive a lot of usually crazy or estuary notes you want it to be really about malt and malt character and you don't have a lot of room to hide bad fermentation characters or no exactly that's a very good point that um i usually forget about i I guess um what else would I, i i call a characteristic i don't know it's such a simple beer to make and 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 live with it's there's not really a whole lot of complexity. I, obviously, your yeast. I, in terms of yeast, I've always gone to a uh, something uniquely British. Uh, 
Weiss used to call it 1028. I think the, I don't know, it's London 2 or London 1 or London 2. Um, what I like about that is that it, it ferments a lot lower than Weiss will tell you. So I keep it in the 64, 65 Fahrenheit range. And then um, uh, it give, throws a bready character rather than a lot of esters and, you know, fruitiness. I think it, while it's not as clean, it's never going to be as like 1056. 1056 is so clean that it doesn't really give you any character, nothing to nothing to play off of. I also find that 1056 tends to attenuate down, maybe a hair too much, so it it, it busts out a little bit of the body and, and mouthfeel that I was hoping for. Another thing, and I don't know how this escaped me in terms of what to think about, is Every mild ale brewery that I visited, and I visited quite a few specifically about mild ale, everyone was using some sort of adjunctive sugar. You know, if you can get it, inverted sugar is great. In the U.S., though, it's really not something that you could just call, you know, BSG and, and get some invert in-house. So um, I go straight for regular old sucrose. I, I feel like, you know, in, in the neighborhood of... I don't know, four to six percent of the of the total fermentable sugar is uh, is sucrose in my brewery. A very important thing is the British brewers, at least historically, have been far less chauvinistic about the use of adjuncts than I think American craft brewers tend to be. They are, uh, and here's one American brewer that isn't chauvinistic about it. I mean. Even read the brewing text. Hell, read Kunza, right? If there's anybody who should be uh, rallying against the uh, idea of using sugar, but even in Kunza's book, he'll tell you, you know, that you're you're really not losing anything in terms of, you know, the the whole back in the day that say, oh, you get a cidery this or a, it's a little bit whiny because you use sugar. I've never experienced any of that. Sure, I guess if you're using forty percent sugar, but. Um, Use just a little bit, just enough. At least for a little while, there was a brewery, uh, Becker Brewery, that was yeah. that had made some invert sugars that they're on the, that they put out on the market. I don't know if they're still doing them. I haven't seen it in quite a while. And, but of course, also it's not that hard for people to make invert syrups yeah, you or can even make your own. even cheater invert syrups. And I'll include a link. There was a the one that we've talked about before in the past because that's what I'll do sometimes. Is I'll make like a an invert number two with invert syrup and molasses. Yeah, that does work. One of the other things I've noticed is American brewers tend to be where we tend to be very bombastic with a lot of aspects of brewing. It feels like American brewers tend to be far less bombastic about water salts and water treatment, uh, compared, particularly compared to a lot of British breweries that I've seen numbers for. Sure. When we're talking about mild, since one of the challenges of a beer this low in gravity is trying to keep a larger perceived body. You know, and kind of keep that. It feels bigger than the ten thirty eight. It is. Water plays a role in that. Do you do anything with your water? I, I do not. I believe. I believe, and I, I have been blessed in that in Northeast Ohio, our water sources are very, very stable over long periods of time. So I have always believed in Hausgeschmeckt, and I believe that our Hausgeschmeckt is tied directly to our water. So I don't do any adjustments for my own beers. Now I do do some contract beers for other brewers who want to, uh, uh, to play with that. And I have a small RO system that I will use for theirs. And I have done some 
you know, adjustment of water salts. But for our beers, it's the brewery water. It is funny to watch because like, I'll, I'll read like British brewing tables and, and they're like, yes, for sulfate, you want 300 parts per million or something like that. <laughs> to, yeah. Like to American brewers is like, whoa, hold on. Slow down there, buddy. Read any of those tables. And, and you know, I look at our own our own water and, and basically we're not good for making any style of beer. If if you read the tables, you know, it's just, it's, it's all over the place in terms of sulfite and chlorides and you name it. But, um, for our water, I I mean, I think our beers are pretty good. You know, the one thing that I have actually been lamenting lately is that I'm having trouble. And again, this is off topic, having trouble bringing some aromas out of certain things. Like we have a, uh, this is, Totally not mild ale, but uh, we have a pineapple IPA that I cannot seem to get a pineapple aroma out. And I wonder if it's due to my water, but who knows? What do you do if you're not, if you're not messing around with water, what do you do in order to boost that perceived body? I use uh, quite a bit of a a pair of pills, which I guess is not a a very British thing to do. It's, it's that and trying to use a, 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 a yeast it's not going to attenuate a lot of my body out but carapils is is probably my biggest trick in keeping some body in it um also a uh, little higher starting gravities than you probably are used to my my mild um, tops out around 4.8 percent so it's a little bit higher than than typical that's for two different reasons. One is that I have to be able to look somebody and and have some defensibility and saying it's five percent. Um, so I, I round up a little bit just because again, you know, sales of it suffer if if you're that low. My original gravity is just a little bit higher, um, and then try not to attenuate out. Add some carapils and and malts like that to round it out. But melanoidin malt also for some of the color which leaves a little bit behind. I used to use like strictly like a crisp light chocolate and a uh, black Prince uh, dehusk. Now it's mostly melanoidin. Well, and isn't it funny that we have that sort of push pull, right? We want, we want to preserve body and yet we're using sugar. Well, I use sugar again. You saw it was three or 4%. I use it mostly because it's a traditional thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's just funny how that, that works. It's like, wait, hold on. What? Yeah. Aren't, we, aren't we fighting each other? <laughs> well, you know, and that's that's what the British brewers have that we don't. You know, you just alluded to it. It's it's in the water. It's 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 that appellation, I guess, the Midlands that just lends itself to those higher bodies and in, in relatively weak beers. But uh, but like you said, we can we can play with it. I choose not to to be totally candid. Probably stemmed from laziness to begin with. Also, it's very difficult in in a brewery like most American craft breweries to really treat the water because at some point, you know, that water is either being replenished in a hot liquor tank or, you know, what are you just going to treat the mash water or are you going to treat the sparge water too? It's really difficult to treat all the way across the board. So I, I long ago decided that I was going to go with our brewery water without having to invest in the system to make it easy to adjust. So, I mean, to me, it sounds like the the keys in order to kind of keep a good body is start with uh, start with a nice hearty base malt. In your case, you you were talking about using Maris Otter, which of course I, I love to death. Uh, Golden Promise would work pretty well. I just made a mild with uh, the crisp Chevalier uh, heritage malt that they made. Yeah, 
I swear that we just used that in something, probably in a pilot bat. But I mean, that one's a malt bomb. It makes Maris Otter look like weak tea. Um, so that uh, that works pretty well there, obviously. Oh, yeah, it was our Scotch Ale that we did with that. You're right. There you go. I, I guess I should also say that the, the water happens to be pretty good for that. My chloride levels are are definitely in the higher part of that range. I think we're at 220 or thereabout. So I'm always going to have that body. In fact, that's a hard thing for me to deal with when I do like a Pilsner or or uh, you know something that I want to dry out a little bit more. Plus, you know, my sodium levels are unfortunately kind of high. Um, you know, I think I'm at 54, 56. Yeah, you should look it up. Yeah, yeah. And so, while that gives me some some probably brings out some sweetness, it's also you know, I don't know, makes my IPAs a little more harsh than they need to be. Yeah, my my challenge is always with my cream ale. Uh, the, yeah. sodium, the sodium makes my cream ale taste like a, a salt lick. Oh, well. Yeah. What, what's your sodium level? Like 51. Okay. Yeah, we're in the same, same area. Now, we also didn't talk hops because, of course, I think in this one, hops really don't matter. In my mild recipe, it's like this is the most ridiculously small amount of hops I use in anything. I, I use... It is. I use like a... A quarter of the ounce, a quarter of an ounce at the most, you know, for, for because it's like, right. But, but there is, there's one exception to that. I would say is that I, I try to cask up, you know, several of, you know, if I'm doing something like this beer, like 44, I'm going to do some cast. I'm always going to use some hops in there. And so at that point though, I go for Fuggle. Uh, what do, you, do you normally care about what you're using for bittering or is it just whatever you have on hand? I, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, what I have on hand is always Magnum. I've always just used Magnum. Not always, but I don't know, in the last 10 years, it's been Magnum. So, I mean, all you're looking at is for, for Alpha there, right? So, yeah, Magnum. Now, you know, I, I should I should say that in something like a mild ale, if I was doing a small batch, if I wasn't doing 30 barrels, I might just go for just, again, just for the tradition of it, using Fuggle the whole way through. Because it's not going to be a lot of green matter anyway. and you know, then you've got at least a, a single hop in there, and it's it's more British, I guess. But certainly, if I'm going for a, a larger quantity of alpha, I'm going to just go to Magnum. Yeah, I used to always use uh, when I could get my hands on good versions of it, either Target or Challenger, just to stay like, oh, look, British hop. Yeah, and where are you going to find those? Fug- Fuggle and East Kent Gold, you can still find in, in pretty decent, pretty decent quality, and not too damn old. You'd mentioned the inverted sugars as like an adjunct. Do you do yeah. you ever use any other adjuncts? Like I, because I'm a fan of using like a little bit of flaked oats or something. Yeah, I I do. I actually it was while you uh, had me on hold there for a second, I pulled up my recipe and I do have I have a ten percent flaked oats in in our. You get this just a um a creaminess. So when I did my externships over there, I worked at Murphy's, and that was my biggest takeaway at Murphy's was in the Irish stout there was a heavy charge of flaked oats rather than flake barley. And I attribute their, the creaminess of a Murphy's over a Guinness to that fact. And I'm certain that that's why that's in my, my recipe. Any other thoughts that you have about like what makes a mild that kicks ass for you? I mean, I, I, I don't know if, if mild kicks ass as much as the few casks of mild that I pull out 
and have those kick ass. Um, once you once you fizzy it up a little bit, it it, it loses a little bit of that. I mean, how, how could he argue against a beer that is so friendly? I mean, honestly, the the culture that we talked about people rebelling against is kind of a culture of friendliness, of, of community coming together and hanging around the pub and, and tipping a few back together. Not just you and your buddies, but your wife and your kids and the dogs. You know, uh, I don't know how you can rebel against that. And if there's any... If there's any part of you that communes with, you know, this, the, the great parade of brewers and, and, and people who enjoyed beer from, you know, 40,000 years ago to today, Mild Ale should be a, a, a stop on that journey. The thing I love about a good mild is it is a beer that I can have. I can have it with a conversation. I can have it with friends. I can have many of them, which means I can have more conversation. And at the same time, it never bores me and it never shouts me down. Yeah. The, the, the one, <laughs> would you have something, anything, frankly, that's, that's really best in class. The only, the only problem I see with like sitting, what, what you just said is that sometimes I want to think more about that beer than the people in front of me. <laughs> and and i you could sometimes depending on who's in front of you maybe that's a good thing but i i don't know i'm gonna leave it there <laughs> to be honest talking to you today has brought me back to so many little things you know hanging out in those pubs and i and i do remember going man like don't talk to me right now because this cask of Highgate is so fresh. I don't really want. I don't really want to talk. I just want to enjoy this. But in general, you're right. I mean, certainly it's it is a social lubricant like no other because uh, the socialization can go on for much longer when you're drinking a three and a half percent beer. Yeah, but now I'm just picturing you sitting in a pub, looking at the pint of beer, and going, "Shh, the beer and I are talking." <laughs> we are. That's true. That's true. And um, if my wife had heard you uh, say that, she would also laugh because I talk to a lot of beer. Dave, I'm, I want to uh, thank you for taking the time to talk about mild w- with us. Thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm glad we hooked up. Uh, I was when you suggested this. I think uh, we were on Facebook or something. Um, I I became very excited at it and it was fun. Boys and girls, look. A lot of commercial breweries out there can't go and make a mild because, as Dave alluded to, it takes forever to sell, unfortunately, which means that you can't really hold on to it. So you, as homebrewers or the professional brewers who are listening to this, you have the power. Go make yourself a mild. And if you make yourself a really good mild, and I'll include a link to my recipe. And Dave, are you willing to share a recipe? for? Oh, absolutely. All right. Without a doubt. So we'll include also a link for uh, Dave's recipe. Go and try these beers because particularly when they're fresh and you're sitting there with a, just giving yourself a nice high pint, uh, pint pour, there's a very few better ways to spend an afternoon. Thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at mild, well, at least one take on it. I cannot encourage you enough to go brew a mild. They're cheap, they're easy to make, and really... You can think of it as a long summer evening chat fuel. And maybe you'll be like Dave and have a nice long talk with your beer. Now remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. 
You can reach us at Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com or Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the HA, Amazon, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Canines for Warriors, helping train up service animals for those in need. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. The Seltzer Sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes, or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to five gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. Sunset.